I like this new look into Shadi's neuroses. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, so Demir, you were saying, though, that this is the first time back. This is the first time back since, I don't know, we'd have to go back to the archives to figure out when the last time we recorded. I hope people don't judge us for being in the same room. Yeah, that's it's funny, right? I mean, like, it's it's more... Katie, you won't get in trouble for being with us in the same room, will you? I think we stand to win a tremendous Darwin Award out of this one. <laughs> Oh, I mean, we we've been we were we've been tempting fate for a very long time on this one. I guess oh, I should... good to know. Thanks yeah. for inviting me over, guys. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, though, Katie is six feet away from me. Yeah, more. Yeah, you guys are seven <laughs> feet away. I I always want to be at least six feet away from Shani, even before the pandemic. Oh, 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 no, guys, I, I'm I'm a little bit sensitive. Yeah, Shadi's Shadi's having a rough week. <laughs> people look. People don't always realize that I have feelings. Shadi has feelings too, Katie. I I didn't realize this was going to be what we spoke about, but I'm actually very intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Shadi doesn't have feelings. Uh, we have Katie Benner on right now. Um, Katie is at the New York Times and you cover Justice Department, Law and Order. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we know Katie through this reading group about which we'll probably be talking about in future episodes more, but I know you... We figured this out. Walk me back to this, Katie. How do we figure out that we know the same person that you went to high school with and I was like like band <laughs> friends with? Yeah, I went to college with. College. So um, she asked me what I was doing. I explained to her that I was in a Zoom group of extremely nerdy people. <laughs> she was who like, I know who's there. To read Hume. <laughs> <laughs> and I mentioned some names. She goes, Demir? Wait, really? <laughs> Not that she doesn't think of you as a nerdy person who'd want to read Hume. Right. I think she was just surprised that that's how we came together because she was expecting it to happen like in a bar. Right. Yeah. But this was already passed in the post-bar period. Yeah, bars were dead. Yeah, bars are gone. So yeah, uh, we have a, a mutual friend and then, yeah. And now, I mean, she's a friend of the pod in many ways because we've seen each other a lot in the last X number of months, I guess, you know, in, in off days and things like that. Uh, so welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me. Mm. We're very excited about this. Okay. Well, so I, I don't know. Look, I the reason I, I I thought that it would be great to talk to you is because I've been obsessed with January 6th. It's just like been like a complete and utter obsession for me. And um, I don't know. Like I've written about it. Shadi, you've not written much about it, have you? It's time. You're working on your book. You're not, you're not, you're not in the present. That's true. I'm, I'm trying to avoid... Um, writing too much about current events, but also not to get into like my, uh, this, uh, I, you know, I've brought it up in previous episodes. I don't want to like bore our listeners, but because I feel like I was a little bit burned by the discourse. So I've been trying to stay away from the discourse a little bit. Well, because you know, just people attacking me a lot. <laughs> oh, that's what you mean by the discourse. Yeah. The dis- people being mean online. The, dis- <laughs> the discourse is about shoddy. The discourse on shoddy. But also, I mean, I, I think that I made a conscious decision that after Biden was elected that I wanted to sort of pivot away and just get back into the long-term questions that I'm, I've always been more interested in. I don't like the day-to-day noise, and I've been cutting down on my Twitter usage and all of that. I think that now that Trump is away and it's remarkable to me how little Trump makes himself apparent in our minds. Like I'm, I'm thinking to myself some, sometimes some days, what happened to Donald Trump? It's remarkable. Mm -hmm. 
And it really does make a difference that he has no obvious way to communicate his thoughts on a regular basis. And this is wonderful. And it's something that I want to be part of, which is shifting. So I don't want to be obsessed with Jane. I mean, but obviously we'll talk about it because we are very curious about. I mean, I, you don't have to be obsessed. I'm obsessed. I'll talk to Katie. You just sit over there and, <laughs> and like, write and write your book. I literally thought to myself with this episode, this can be a relaxing episode where I can be more in listening mode. I don't have to say that much, but I'm probably going to say that. No, you're much. doing a good job. <laughs> but it's, so, what you bring up, I think a lot of reporters felt very similarly that once Biden had won, there'd be this downshift in terms of cadence of story and speed of news. <clears throat> Obviously, January 6th changed that. And you also bring up something that we probably, maybe not in this episode, but that we should all be thinking about, which is how much technology changed what we think of as political life. And so to take away um, Trump's political, his, his technological platform and force him back into a mode where he has to use institutions like the press to get his message out, how much that t- it disempowered him is a real thing. And so, you know, whether or not you talk about it today, we talk about it today. It, it, <laughs> well, I, it's, it's very real. Now let's talk about that. I mean, I, that's a, that's a, uh, I think super important, right? Because well, I don't know. How, 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 how do we feel about that collectively, about the fact that how this decision was taken? I mean, obviously, I'm relieved that I don't like I feel like there's a feeling that that you I've, you've stepped out of an abusive relationship and you didn't know that you were just getting abused all the time. And it's just like, oh, oh, that's right. You know, like. Okay, I, and you can say to yourself, did I really want the cops to haul him away in that really rough way, or did I want it to happen in a more genteel manner? Yeah. But either way, you're just happy to be out of the abusive relationship. <laughs> no, so so that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it feels good to be out of the abusive relationship. Um, but but right, I mean, it's it's the question is, um, is it okay that like I don't know my neighbor down the street who had a big gun just came over and shot him? You know what I mean? This, well, is, I this that, is all metaphor. We just want to clarify. Yeah, nobody, no one's calling been for the death of yeah. You yeah. mean like the tw- you're, you're referring I'm talking to about Twitter? About the Twitter police. I'm talking about Twitter police, just like de- deplatforming like that. I mean, again, it's like it's 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 good. So I think that the so I, so I think that Twitter did it wrong. So they they kind of tried to fit the president's action, the former president's actions, into the rubric of their terms of service, mm. and that he violated them. And I think if they'd been more straightforward and more honest with people and said, "This is an." unprecedented situation, a word I hate. If I say unprecedented again, stop me. This is a situation we've not seen before where the leader of a country has been consistently using our platform in such a way and established such a norm that he could make a statement that could be taken seriously by the rest of the world and we can't stop it. And that is really dangerous in this moment for national security. And thus we are making a decision we've never made before. If they'd been much more straightforward about the stakes, which were so clear and which they clearly were thinking about, rather than trying to do this backwards, oh, he said something that may or may not have violated a term of service that we've let him get away with for four years. I think that would have actually been more helpful to the conversation around deplatforming, when it's appropriate, why it could be appropriate, and the power of the platform. Well, I think it's it would be helpful because it was, it's more honest in a way. Yeah. But it's more honest and, and more brazen in revealing, you know, I mean, because the, the, the underlying question in this, right, is how do how is it that, that um, when we elect a president, you're granting a certain amount of privilege as a result of that, like an unprecedented 
<laughs> uh, like uh, just a just a uh, a, a an, an unlimited amount of privilege ultimately on one person. It's it's you're granting a kind of individual sovereignty to an individual. Yeah, right. I mean, just like so so much power, and then to have. In a way, like legally, it makes sense. It's like private. This is private property. I can do what I want, and mm-hmm. so they do that. I, I mean, I think your your explanation, being that it's more honest and it's anti democraticness, um, is uh, also. I mean, it's it's healthy in a way, but it's also more problematic. But in is a way, it right? anti democratic, or is it is, or is it ceding power back to institutions? So what they, what Twitter did when they forced Trump off the platform is they said. Now you actually have to work through traditional institutions that you've managed to avoid and circumvent for four years. And whether that traditional institution is earning a story in the media or whether the traditional institution is actually talking to your joint chiefs about whether or not you're going to instigate war with another country, you actually have to do that now. You can't just go around them. And so being anti-democratic is one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is Twitter gave power back to the institutions that Trump had basically pissed on for four years, ignored, trampled, and decided that he did not need to negotiate with, which, and he didn't need to negotiate with them for, for a vast part of his presidency in large part because of Twitter. Mm. No, I mean, I, I, I like that argument a lot. Uh, I just, I have such a deep loathing of Twitter that like, <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's, uh, um, yes. D- Demir, yeah. I think what 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 grates on me in this whole thing is, and you sort of alluded to it, the pretense to consistency. And this is, I think, all elite institutions that, in various ways, we've all been a part of. Um, they try to present themselves as having some kind of moral high ground, and they do that by coming up with what they think are consistent rules, regulations, and procedures. But it's a pretense because it's still ultimately arbitrary. And I think that any time an institution tries to be consistent, it leaves them open to charges of hypocrisy, which is precisely what happened after Twitter tried to um, – it, it kind of put itself in knots trying to seem like there's a clear policy when in fact there wasn't a clear policy and, you know, we can probably say this about other mainstream uh, news outlets or institutions. They all fall into this trap. And I think that our government, you know, uh, not under Trump because there was no pretense to consistency there. But I think this is going to be an issue with the Biden administration, too. And I'm a little bit torn on this because I want us I would like us to be consistent on things like promoting democracy abroad and human rights, and especially in the Middle East, the region that I'm most focused on. But it's precisely this pretense that the U.S. is pro-democracy abroad that makes people in other countries angry because they can see that we are not consistent. We enforce our human rights policies in in an arbitrary way that is dependent on national security interests. And there's always going to be this tension between quote-unquote interests and ideals so on and so forth. But this is a problem, you know, so the, the other option is to just be really honest and say for people to say, you know what, we're not consistent. But it's also hard to imagine Twitter or the New York Times saying that, hey, we're arbitrary in how we enforce rules. That's not going to fly either because that will create outrage too. Oh my God, the New York Times is is um, is arbitrary? No, we want to think about the New York Times in a way that it is a, it is a morally, it is infused with morality. I mean, Shadi, how do you feel about we're trying, but we make mistakes? Yeah, that's is not, that an acceptable? That's, that's cute. 
Mm. <laughs> and this is one of the interesting things about this sort of like post 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 modern world is that the reason why institutions seemed infallible before is because that was literally not an option as an answer, nor was it an option anybody wanted. And then we've spent, you know, a couple of decades um, deconstructing power and saying that there is no overarching institution. And so we're left with seeing both um, the warts and all laid bare every day and desiring the consistency. So how do we straddle those two things? One is we are trying, wh whether the institution is the State Department, you know, to your to your point about diplomacy being so driven by national security interests and having to negotiate that and being honest about the negotiation. In the case of the Times, it would be, you know, sometimes we <clears throat> are inconsistent in the application of our disciplinary policies. <laughs> I think we've all seen pretty publicly. We should hire that Daily Beast reporter, by the way. That Max, I don't know how to say his last name, Tani, Tani. I don't even know who what broke up. He broke open the story about Don McNeil Jr., our star. Donald McNeil Jr., our star. <laughs> um, our, one of our star reporters on the coronavirus beat. He did, oh, oh, did yeah, some yeah. very unsavory things. That guy got a lot of receipts and so if we're if we haven't already hired him i'm i'm sad because he's so good i didn't mm. even hear about this new york times <laughs> uh, fired some guy named don mcneil no he didn't they didn't hire him but okay. what's <laughs> what's so great is that you didn't hear about it because that gives me whew, some hope <laughs> also in the era of twitter and people being online all the time we are having such a hard time gauging like what is actually important for us mm. to pay attention to. Mm. Look, I would say like I would appreciate if the New York Times said something like, hey, we're not perfect. We're trying. I think I would appreciate that. I just don't think I don't know if other people would appreciate it. Um, so there's also this question of my my particular whims and preferences are unique to me. I actually appreciate it when people acknowledge fault. But I think there is a real risk in the online space. Anytime people see weakness, they sense that and then they pounce. And that's why I think a lot of people who would otherwise apologize or say, hey, we made a mistake. This is just the way, this is life. That, that, um, that people will say, oh my God, look. And then you're going to have all these bad faith actors, particularly, let's say, on the right side of the spectrum who use that to delegitimize the New York Times. Um, it's not like individual relationships. So I feel like um, in relationships or friendships, um, when a when a friend or a romantic partner says, hey, look, um, I'm sorry, you know, I appreciate that. That's good. That's human beings interacting in a positive, constructive way. And I presumably, I mean, I'm not married. I guess you, you're, you're married, I guess. <laughs> Demir's not married. Um, means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> you guys but, make it sound so great. But can a marriage work without acknowledge acknowledgement of fault? My, well, no relationship can. Yeah. But, but guys, I, I feel like but we didn't used to think of institutions as in relationship to precisely. people either. That's a very like promo no, thing. No, I think that's. I, I think we're losing the thread. Like going in that in that in that uh, in that metaphor. No, I think it's weird. Yeah, it's, it's, shot, it's shoddy therapy session. <laughs> No, because 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 really, what it comes down to is, I mean, I want to cycle back to a couple of things you said. That that there is a fundamental difference between Twitter and the New York Times. Also, uh, the New York Times has aspirations to neutrality, but it isn't. And I think it's one of those things that you, you talked about. Like you know, we've been deconstructing power through postmodernism all this time, and we're more aware of that now. That in fact, like you know, that that kind of view from nowhere is impossible. And so obviously, you know, that doesn't mean that that like New York Times automatically is uh, like as partisan as some rabid left wing or right wing press in Europe. 
uh, because it tries to keep itself to a standard. I'm not saying that that, but you know, also at the same time, and things have been written about this, right? Is that you know the subscription model is also changing these sorts of things. You know mm-hmm. who your readers are. You're catering to the, your readers to a certain extent, and so things are changing in the media space. It's a fundamentally different proposition from Twitter. And and this gets back to the other thing, which is like, fine, I, again, I think your rationale, the ideal rationale that Twitter should have made for deplatforming, you know, for the institutions. But quite frankly, once you've made that move, I'd say Twitter is not good for democracy, period. It's not empowering anyone. It's empowering like, like a, a bunch of toxic people to mm-hmm. mouth off on it. But and, Twitter's and, 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 always and, been doing that secretly through its algorithm. It's just not visible. I mean, they are still making choices. They might say it's automated, but the choices are being made. Sure, but you know what I'm getting at is like I think that that the that the honest mistake for tw- uh, the honest move for Twitter would be if it's using that rationale, like for national security, would be to like will itself out of existence. You know, like in like a in a in a puff of acrid smoke, it disappears. It like does this and just goes away. It's not going to happen, but it's like that, that to me is the, so it's not about, it's not about trying and like saying you're sorry and like striving for a better world. It's, it's like the New York Times is from a previous, previous period. We have now come to understand that a certain kind of pose from that previous period is perhaps not fully sustainable, but still has this kind of weight Mm -hmm. that we should aspire to. Mm -hmm. But like Twitter is none of that. Like it's, it's, it's totally it has a pretension for being a certain kind of like uh, neutral pipeline, which mm-hmm. it's not. As you said, it has algorithms, algorithms that, that uh, does all of this. It's not neutral. So I don't know. Um, I, <clears throat> yeah, I'm still troubled by the fact that, that they did it selectively on this because if they're doing it to Trump, they should just disappear is really kind of the way I feel about it, even though I'm glad he's gone and I'm not being abused anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, just so we – so. Jan- but let's not forget about January Oh, no, no, 6th. yeah, I, I want to go back to that. We're just getting started here. Because <laughs> um, I think... Ventimere has a 48-ounce beer in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a while. <laughs> because I feel like the, tw- the Twitter debate gets us into a bigger set of issues about what we do about perceived threats. And Mm. now that the Mm -hmm. threat is Mm -hmm. heightened and we're talking about domestic terrorism and right-wing extremists, and now we're even talking about people who were previously within the fold, normal Republican, not maybe not normal, but they were Republican senators. And now there's a question of whether or not Republican senators should be seen as legitimate interlocutors or if we should push them outside and basically say, they are persona non grata, and we should actually isolate them as much as possible, that they are basically contributing to the fomenting of insurrection or instability Mm -hmm. or extremism. And that's what you've been reporting on um, for the New York Times is this new focus on quote-unquote domestic terrorism and this heightened attention that I think a lot of folks on the left and the center and the center left are all trying to shift our attention to this right-wing extremist threat. And I'm fine with that, and I support it with a caveat. And I and I don't think there's a... Which is that, and I see this happening every day now, where we're conflating domestic terrorists, right-wing extremists, mm-hmm. Trump supporters, mm-hmm. Republicans in the Senate. And I think there's a desire to say that this is all a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Some are explicitly violent, but they're all feeding off of each other, and they're all a danger to American national security. In other words, Hmm. the vast majority of the 74 million 
Trump voters are peaceful, obviously. The people who were there at the Capitol are a very, very microscopic portion of the overall number of Trump voters, but they're all on a similar, they're all on the same spectrum of badness. That's what makes me nervous because what there's only one place you end up with that kind of conversation, which is that anyone who was a Trump voter is is under scrutiny. I don't mean scrutiny from domestic law enforcement. I mean, scrutiny from anyone. Like we're looking at them and saying they are people who believe in something which is potentially dangerous. So this is for a our crude society. analogy, but but Muslims after nine eleven. Yes, yes. So, and I understand the concern. I think one of the reasons. First, of all, I'll just talk about one of the reasons why I think we're seeing the phenomenon that you're talking about, and then I'll, I'll move backwards. But it's because Donald Trump himself refuses to concede the election, and he continues to say things that are untrue about the results of the election, and so that is fueling. It's, it's fueling all of, it's, it's fueling every group you just mentioned to different degrees to do different things. But whether it's, uh, an elected official who is also continuing to use their position of power in Congress to perpetuate untrue statements about who won the election, whether it's an ardent Trump supporter who continues to believe in conspiracy theories because he refuses to concede the election, or whether it's some, something more violent and more serious like, a domestic terrorist, they're all feeding off of the same source. And so that makes it, I think, very difficult for people to see the spectrum that, that you rightfully and that law enforcement would say exists. You rightfully say and that law enforcement rightfully say exists. So, for example, one of the reasons why domestic terrorism has been so thorny in the United States is because we have the First Amendment. So there are things that if you saw in a chat room, somebody, foreign actors overseas who are ISIS members saying, there are a lot of tools that you would start using to try to figure out what they're up to that you just can't use against American citizens for saying, you know, for making First Amendment protected statements. And so. And that's the way it should be. Which, and in I, my view. And I, and I, I'm going to say that I, I, I agree with that bright line. And law enforcement generally agrees with that bright line as well. And so there, so what you saw with January 6th that was so shocking is you saw a lot of intelligence that was all First Amendment protected free speech indicating a really dreadful thing could happen. And law enforcement did not analyze that correctly. And so then you have to ask yourself, why didn't law enforcement analyze that correctly? Is it just because it was First Amendment protected free speech? Is it because law enforcement was still at that point working underneath the, you know, it's part of the executive branch, federal law enforcement and <clears throat> through the justice department. And for them, they were seeing the president's own supporters speaking and how much of that sort of colors your ability to analyze whether it's a bias or whether it's just, you know, a, a shading. And then how much of those people, you know, how much is the assumption around the president's supporters being that they're pro law enforcement, that they would never hurt a police officer? How did all of these things come together to get us to a situation where we had so much intelligence that was so poorly interpreted that led us to this complete disaster? So just one thing on that. So when you, if we're talking about a Trump voter who claimed, who says that he or she believes that the election was stolen and rigged or whatever, mm -hmm. I guess my concern is that that's a really bad idea, and I think, but it's not terrorism. Exactly, and exactly. But my concern is that by saying these are people, we're kind of conflating people who think the election was stolen 
with right-wing extremists who are potentially violent. And I think we have to make very clear distinctions. And Demir, you've written about this because you made, the, I think, the really interesting and I think original argument that when people say the election was stolen from Trump, they're not actually making a factual claim about the election result. They're using that as a way to signify their discontent or opposition to an entrenched elite so it doesn't really matter who won or who didn't. They're just angry, and this is the most obvious way to communicate their anger. Is that is it, no? I mean, it's fair. It's just when when you put it like that out of context, it sounds like a, like a deeply unsupported claim, which it is. <laughs> but you did. I mean, I, I argued it, and it, it's like I threw it out there in the spirit of like, here's some shit. No, I, look no, at it. But I, but I think no. it's a really. In- no, no, but all I'm saying is like when you put it like that, there's absolutely no way to prove that. I have no idea what's in these people's heads. Maybe they actually do believe. In, and again, it comes down on the spectrum question. Some people actually probably believe that the conspiracy as such is real. But I think it's funny is is that – I mean I was going to ask you about that because it's 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 partly when you were talking there, I got that that whiff of that other thing. It's like we have to protect the truth because mm-hmm. that's the other narrative that, that's mm-hmm. coming out in a lot of this stuff. It's like it's, it's the truth against falsity and we have to fight falsity. That's why that, that was that – uh, there was a. I, I saw there was the article. I didn't read it. I think it was in the Times, right? It was the the someone wrote uh, proposing that Biden appoint a truth czar or mm-hmm. some, something mm-hmm. like Wait, that. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, truth czar. I, I saw that and I, I I deeply chuckled to myself because that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what what this sort of thing is. It's like we have to fight falsity, like like ignorance. Called, usually in most countries, that's the minister of information. And everyone made that joke. Say, and then yes. everyone made that joke. The ministry of truth is coming to America. Um, but, but it's, uh, um, you know, so, so yeah, I, I, I think that's, that is one of those things that's, that's, I think, uh, also one of the things that ends up, ends up becoming the, the narrative is we have to, we on the side of truth and knowledge are fighting the, the irrational hordes that are coming up against this. And I just think that's like the wrong tool to do this because that's, because mm-hmm. this is, because ultimately this is politics is what, I, I think that's what my argument boils down to is that like, these are. These are political questions, and they're perhaps being uh, expressed in a deeply irrational way. But these are these are uh, this is this is this is a facet of polarization and the nasty place our country's in, and and not really something that is fought by enlightening people. Right in an era where politics is defined as as a as an amassing of power, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, that gets to another thing about how how this country is structured, right? I mean, maybe it's we just have too much of a centralized thing in the stakes. I mean, Shadi's talked about this as well. It's like that the stakes are too high for the presidential things. Like we're we're pouring all of our our bullshit, our bullshit that that's better resolved on a local level on a face to face thing. We're like. Where, where the stakes are lower and, and you're, you're face-to-face with people. We're, we're pouring all of our dysfunctions into these like zero-sum fights for, mm-hmm. for the highest office because that's where all the power is. Maybe that's a part of a problem as you well. You know, that's something I've been thinking about for a while. I think probably since the financial crisis is this real barbell effect we've gotten in basically every facet of our lives where the concentration either very, very, very far on one side to the to pre-existing institutions or very, very far to the other side with beyond grassroots. So in political power, it's the presidency or bust or it's militias and other right. sort of like sort of, you know, like ultra extreme groups that are willing to fight that power. You see it in finance, too, where it's either, you know, the big banks consolidated, they got bigger. And it was them, and then it's like some GameStop dudes, <laughs> who I personally am very excited about. 
about I, I I understand many people want to regulate them, but I'm but it also it goes to this sort of um paradigm we've seen develop since the twenty first century began, which is you have almost nothing in the middle, whether it's in the economy, whether it's in institutions like financial institutions, educational institutions, our media institutions, you, the middle has been hollowed out. And so we are living with the 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 consequences of that. Mm-hmm. But maybe at some basic level, I mean, we're scared of crowds. And not to reference too directly the, the name of this podcast. You do a lot of brand, self-branding. <laughs> we're good. At, oh, uh, that's, I mean, what, is, that's, that's pretty much my job. <laughs> I'm the marketer in chief yeah, here. Yeah. Um, but I, I do like this idea that we kind of play with on the podcast where people sometimes are confused where they think that, oh, we're called wisdom of crowds and we actually think crowds are wise. We don't. It's it's ironic. We don't, we're very suspicious of crowds and we're also low level misanthropes. Demir, high level, I'm low level. We don't, I mean, we don't love people. However. I'm charging by the hour. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, and I'm someone who very much believes that there has to be some deference to mass sentiment. That Mm -hmm. if elite institutions try to suppress or control or otherwise regulate mass sentiment, that it ends up backfiring. And we have to be very careful about that. So when I look at the the GameStop controversy, I see financial elites who looked at these hordes on Reddit who are making their own decisions with their stock portfolios, but coordinating effectively. And they say, oh my God, a mass, a crowd of people are coordinating effectively and driving up a stock price. We don't like it when crowds do that. We're, We're So anytime we see masses, the masses do like coordinating in this way that is contrary to certain elite interests, we immediately start to wonder and say, oh, well, maybe the market isn't that great. Maybe democracy isn't that great if we're, if it means that the masses can sort of usurp the power on their own behalf, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how do you. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, 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 that's. I want to hear what Katie has yeah, to I don't know. say about that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, <clears throat> I think the, we, you and I just said some, a version of the same thing, which is so much power amassed to, uh, elites and to large institutions that it felt like a, we're living in a world of just increasingly desperate attempts to undo that. And then the elite institutions frown upon it and they use the power they have to try to stop it. But so, Katie, walk me through, um, now, you're not going to be able to agree with this because uh, – but this is one of the, my favorite things that, that my uh, former editor, Adam Garfinkel, said. He said, the FBI is the dumbest branch of the U.S. government. <laughs> so well, – But let me just – I mean, I, I, you don't have to react to that. Uh, but so given that, given that assertion, which you may or may not agree with, um, I've always wondered – when domestic terrorism is invoked as a thing um how how do you, how does one parse that given given the fbi's i think shortcomings i mean i'll i'll, I'll agree at least partially uh with my former editor on this um how do we parse that how do we parse the fact that a lot a lot i don't know if that's fair a lot i don't follow it closely you cover it but but every so often you get these sorts of busts which are you know maybe these guys were serious but 
they're also clowns and sometimes it feels like there's a there's a an element of of I'm not going to say entrapment because you, you can't tell that it's going to be how dangerous someone's going to be. And you never, as a consumer of news, know the full story of how it goes. But oftentimes these guys are just like jokers, you know, talking, uh, running their mouths and whatever. And then the FBI gets some some guy in there and he's like, hey, guess what? Let's go kill the mayor. And then the guy's like, yeah. And then they like take him to a car and then just like go to jail. You know what I mean? No, so, so, you know uh, – I'm, I'm being I'm being flip here, but 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 walk me through this. Like, there's been a lot of reporting lately, a lot of reporting lately about this threat that's coming up, mm-hmm. and it is one of the stories that is interesting leading up through all of last year. And you know, I mean, this is one of the big narrative fights. Was the right was saying our mm-hmm. cities are burning, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Trump was uh, uh, doing Antifa, Antifa. You were you're on a, you're, one of your bylines recently talks about the fact that like Trump's. Uh, you know, yelling about about Antifa has perhaps even uh, misprioritized some of the 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 uh, the approaches that law enforcement was doing. At the same time, all of our newspapers, New York Times included, Washington Post, was staffing up for the white nationalist domestic terrorism threat. It was like the beat. I mean, there was like the new positions were being put everywhere. Walk me through that. Walk sure. me through as a as a skeptic of the FBI, as mm-hmm, a, as a mm-hmm. competent institution, um, <laughs> with someone who you know I I I find myself sort of trending to the right, but I always recoil from the right. I, I'm not like a like a party person in, in any sort of way. So, but there is something to the fact that like you know uh, the cities did burn, and there mm-hmm, was there mm-hmm. was disorder in the cities, and whether this was an organized left wing cabal looking to no, I don't think that. And, you know, January 6th was, you know, qualitatively different and perhaps worse. But just help me think through this a little bit in those terms. Sure. I actually got out on a notepad because so much is happening. And also, you two men have a lot of inner turmoil that you're working through on this podcast, clearly. Have you, you, you think uh, even Demir has inner absolute, turmoil? Absolutely. <laughs> what, what do no, you th- though I did like his sort of drunk history rendering of the FBI and the history <laughs> of the FBI. But one of the funny things about the FBI is that its 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 reputation was really made around domestic terrorism for good and for bad, and a lot of that happened in the era between you know, sort of like Jim Crow through um, the, the the social upheavals of the sixties and seventies, where you saw the FBI both aggressively go after the KKK, successfully infiltrate the KKK, and take it down as a domestic terror organization, but at the same time, you know spy on civil rights leaders and violate their civil rights. And and because they also saw um, black power as a domestic terror threat. Mm-hmm. And then you've sort of seen as the FBI has progressed through the decades, they obviously want to have a better reputation. So they've really embraced both externally and internally the fight against white nationalism. It's one of the reasons why the FBI is so equipped to handle white nationalism as a threat, why they have, you know, I, I don't want to get into the specific numbers because we haven't reported them yet. But when I talk to sources, both at the Bureau and at the Justice Department, I would say that the number of confidential human sources inside of d- various domestic terrorist th- groups, whether it's militias or white nationalists, disproportionate number of their their own confidential human sources are inside of of white nationalist groups. It is where they have hone their expertise. You could argue that it's in that it's in reaction to being credibly accused of going after civil rights leaders, et cetera, et cetera. And they want to sort of like burnish their reputation and remake the bureau as something that they everybody can be proud of. But for whatever reason, 
coming out of that really turbulent sort of mid-century era, they are a white nationalist fighting machine. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you have the Trump era collide with the FBI in a way that wasn't quite as visible as the Russia investigation, because it's an organization that really saw a huge threat around white nationalism rising under Trump, around militias rising under Trump, in part because Trump seemed to court them. And it was something we'd never seen before. We'd never before seen the president of the United States say yes to these groups, because these groups have traditionally been Mm anti-government. They have not liked any part of the government, either party, specifically, I mean, particularly disdainful of the left, but never felt like the president was in their corner. And they felt that. So you have the FBI in full panic mode with every red light blaring, saying, this is creating a huge problem, but they're also at the same time completely disempowered to say it. Christopher Hooray is terrified of being fired because of the Russian investigation and Trump's hate of the FBI. Once Barr comes in, you have an attorney general who basically runs the FBI more strongly than any attorney general has ever before. Obviously, we didn't see that happen under Obama. Jim Comey felt like he could do pretty much whatever he want, wanted, which he did. Um, especially around the 2016 election, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he felt very empowered. Uh, so you have an attorney general coming in who effectively clamps down on the FBI as an independent organization. And so you, you feel, I think the, from the people we've spoken with, the feeling inside the FBI was we are seeing the threat we know best running amok. And there's literally nothing we can do about it in a way that would be effective because one of the most effective things you can do in that situation is to publicly declare it a threat mm-hmm. and say, we're coming for you. And they, they, and they weren't able to do that and effectively counter the Trump message, which is, I like you. Hmm. How, how does this self-consciousness around the kind of dark past of the FBI fit in with the post 9-11 situation where the FBI, I think, rightly came under a lot of criticism in American Muslim communities for what I, I mean, what I've considered to be very problematic type of operations. So basically, mm-hmm. um, using confidential informants in for, mosques, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and basically sting operations where you would create the FBI would, in effect, create terror plots and encourage Muslims to get on board. And then it's like, oh, we're arresting you for supporting this, but they're the ones who are inserting these ideas and trying to run these people along. And these can be like very, um, very impressionable young people who, if it wasn't for the confidential informant um, encouraging this kind of rhetoric or bad behavior on the very kind of like fledgling level, that they wouldn't have even considered it, but then they use that to kind of charge people, so on and so forth. I don't know how much that's done with white nationalist groups where they're trying to create, they're essentially encouraging criminal activity to then say, let's arrest you for the very criminal activity that we as confidential informants have been encouraging. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like how, I mean, so there's that post 9-11 history, um, and are they self-conscious about the fact that maybe they went too far in terms of infiltrating mosques and essentially, um, you know, tarring American Muslim communities? I think you might find more debate around the post 9-11 activity than you would around the activity in the you know, 50s, 60s and 70s, only because it's more recent history. But there are certainly people inside of the federal government who believe that things went too far in the post 9-11 era. And it, it was part of a moment in time when law enforcement culture, I'm sure you remember every movie from 
um, the early 2000s having like a, a really evil Muslim character. Um, so the, the law enforcement went there, culture went there, politics went there. Everybody went, I think we would argue today, too far. And also, interestingly, in that time, because law enforcement became so focused on overseas terrorism, which they clearly, because 9-11 happened, everybody reasonably believed um, the United States had not been focused on enough. They had taken their eye off of, off of domestic terrorism. And so we're also seeing a realignment today of resources as ISIS and Al-Qaeda feel like lesser threats. How do we reorient the Bureau to look at this thing that we've always looked at? And one of the things I've spoken with people about is there. The, the white nationalist threat is so known to the FBI. The bigger question remains, what about other threats that have cropped up, especially in the last few years, um, QAnon and other conspiracy theories, incels and sort of this um, misogynistic um, violence that sort of that often dovetails with really violent acts, if not to, acts of domestic terror. And then the question about violence on the left, which certainly people like Chad Wolf at DHS and Bill Barr at um, the Justice Department, of course, the president played up, you know, perhaps they'd went too far. But there is the question of, is that something we should be examining? Do we have enough resources there? So there is also now just a total repositioning back to the domestic threat. So that's, so you're seeing that activity makes it almost, I think, in the public, from what we can see, um, as the public, it feels like almost a scrambling. And then January 6th was like pouring gasoline on something that was already happening. Do you think, do you think we're overreacting now? To which part? Uh, and I don't mean on the law enforcement thing. I mean, I, I, you know, again, I guess that's pretty hard to judge even for someone who's covering it. But do you think we as a society now, uh, given, given everything you've just described about how the FBI is, is, you know, it's, I, again, I think your, your, your description is quite, uh, um, compelling uh, about why they are doing this way. But do you think now, and again, this is not even a, a, a ding against the coverage, though I'm happy to to also ask you again about this idea that every paper has like tripled down on this, on this beat. But do you think we as a society after the trauma, and I think it really was, I was traumatized in January 6th watching this in real time for like just, it's, it was just such an incredibly grotesque spectacle. Um, but do you think do you think that like now our approach is one? I mean, again, you, you're seeing uh, hopefully the barricades at some point will come down around the Capitol. But like mm-hmm. that's that's just a, that's that's a stand-in, I think, mm-hmm. for a certain kind of like we are under siege by our own hicks who are misinformed, malevolent, anti-government, and there's a massive mm-hmm. white conspiracy, like uh, white uh, white nationalist conspiracy, out to destroy this country. And like at least half the country is at least partially in its sway. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit overstating for effect, but that is kind of the narrative, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how, how, how do you parse that? I mean, I'll tell you what, I personally find it hard to decide whether or not we're overreacting. Part of it is because when you look at the threat and a friend of mine brought this up the other day, he said, it's so almost clownish. It's hard for me to take seriously, even after people broke through the barricades and assaulted the Capitol and threatened people inside the building. It's still hard for me to take seriously because I don't know how to take seriously the form in which the threat developed over the last four years. So Mm -hmm. whether it was like 
a ridiculous cartoon frog, whether it was, mm. um, you know, I, there, there was, I, I'll, I'll look for this. Somebody just sent me the most ridiculous acronym I've ever seen of, of one of these like threat groups. But, um, you know, so you saw even QAnon in terms of what it is when you, when you just hear about what it is, like read it on the page, a conspiracy group about lizard people who may or may not be running an enormous child trafficking ring who just all happen to be Democrats, including the owner of a pizza shop. Like it sounds absurd on its face. So to believe that that could lead to an actual threat to the country is just very, very difficult to process. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're all still trying to figure out what, what that means and how we, um, and the biases that we all have that allow or don't allow us to understand that as a true threat. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, trying to piece through what happened on January 6th, which was in and of itself, again, if it had all, if it had been just troops of, of people wearing militia gear, using military hand signals, carrying flex cuffs, running into the building with arms, maybe not guns, but with weapons, we would very easily be able to analyze this, I think, both intellectually and emotionally, we'd be able to process it. But when you pull the camera back, you also saw women who looked like they were on their way to Costco. And you saw people with strollers. And you saw, you know, just like very um, sort of like normatively average looking people who we interact with every day. It wasn't just the guy in the fur bikini. That also makes it really hard, just I'll say for me, to, it, it forces me to both look at the situation, report on the situation, talk to experts, but also like have to constantly interrogate my own biases and preconceived notions to better understand what's going on. Because I, like everybody, we all have these like knee jerk responses to what we saw. Mm -hmm. That the, Like I said, it would be so much easier if it had just been a bunch of big white dudes in military gear running in doing this thing that we think that they might do as opposed to, well, what about that woman who looks like all of my neighbors growing up who seems perfectly nice? And if I probably ran into her on the street, I would have a perfectly fine conversation with her. But the fascinating thing is that they, that, that, and I mean, that, that's the other part of this that, that points to, you know, again, it, it, there's the one level of clownishness, which is the, 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 the moron with the horns, the vegan with the horns, who's demanding special meals in prison now. Right. But like, uh, but then there's the other level, which I think is under discussed that if this, you know, the level of planning and you alluded to this earlier, there was all this intelligence that wasn't, that was there and available and wasn't acted upon, but, but it's complicated by the fact that the militia guys didn't have the, their, uh, AR-15s right. and they didn't go in with live ammo shooting. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, they had their, their zip ties and there was some premeditation of something, but mm -hmm. it was also... It's not exactly clear what the the hell that was. I mean, it could have been a lot worse had they had they gone in with guns. You know, even even twenty of those guys with AR-15s could have just you know it would have been a completely different story. So, I mean, what am I getting at there? It's it's still that makes me feel that 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 you know the the level of that of the catastrophic screw up there. Um, it, it's 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 hard to parse, as you said. Um, but I, I still feel that our reaction is somehow doesn't correspond correctly to it. That, I guess that's what all I feel on it is mm -hmm. like, somehow it's like, I saw this thing 
and it's horrible and I want something done about it. But then again, kind of like, like I was alluding to earlier, this idea of like, we stand on the side of truth against falsity. Like we're, we're pressing down with our template onto this and it's not yes. matching. It's yes. like, it's, 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 and so, so that's why I'm deeply unsatisfied no, and I with, feel with all of that. Yeah. Because as a reporter, it's much easier for me to focus on the true DT threat, right? The militias, mm-hmm. the, pro- the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, to look at the conspiracy cases that are emerging from the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. That is actually, I think, really straightforward and for, at least, again, personally, easy for me to do because it does fit into a template that we know already. What is harder, I think, for both the press, and I, I'll just say, again, I'll speak only personally because I don't want to assign anything to my colleagues. I would say for me, it would be personally harder to try to report on the people who came to the Capitol who were not those folks mm-hmm. and to try to make sense of them and then translate it in a, a, in a genuine um, way to the broader public so they could understand it too. I think that's the much harder assignment. The harder assignment is to figure out what everybody else was doing there who didn't plan on kidnapping Mike Pence. Yeah. Well, well, I think part of the problem is that in in mainstream media, there isn't really an interest in looking at the deeper grievances, which is actually, I think, very contrary to how when we looked at extremism in the Middle East, if we were on the left... There was always, rightly, I think, a focus on root causes and mm-hmm. grievances. Mm-hmm. So this debate after 9-11 where people would say, oh, okay, um, anytime you try to understand what could drive terrorism, that means you're blaming America first and you're part of the problem. But I would say, no, if we want to prevent terrorism from becoming worse or or spreading, we have to know what the drivers of extremism actually are. And there's a really weird um, sort of upside down situation where now you see people on the center left basically saying that if you try to understand QAnon or any of these groups or what their grievances, the grievances of any Trump voter might be, you're actually um giving sucker basically uh, i guess that's uh, sc <laughs> we there's certain we, words mm-hmm. i just write but i never actually well, yeah, speak I think that, that's correct okay good good you got it yeah. great yeah hmm. um that you're essentially um f- you're you're making excuses yeah, for you're people a useful who idiot. are you're, deplorable yeah exactly sure mm-hmm. and that you're basically on the same spectrum as them and you're you're encouraging this dangerous behavior so on and so forth so what worries me is that the lessons that we learned in counterterrorism abroad we're not willing to apply them to our own country because white supremacists or white nationalists they don't deserve any kind of understanding where if it was an Islamist group abroad, we're saying, oh, yeah, well, what drives Islamism or what drives radical Islamism? Let's actually do a lot of academic study mm-hmm. to try to understand this, because that's the only way to fight terrorism or extremism mm-hmm. in the long run mm-hmm. is to look at the drivers of that kind of behavior. I would say also, we know, again, from the Middle East, that the point of terrorism at a very basic level is to provoke the target population or the target government to overreact Mm -hmm. what terrorists generally want is for people to do things they otherwise wouldn't do and now we're falling into that because i i see a lot of overreaction so i think there's this really weird situation where 
it's it's almost the opposite of what you would expect. We're more understanding of quote unquote Muslim terrorism and less understanding of American domestic terrorism. Mm. You know, I do. I I I don't. I don't know if I agree or disagree with that. I'd have to think about it for a minute. But I will say that I think that it's very difficult for elite institutions to examine themselves in in any context. And the U.S. is no different there. And when you look at sort of the roots of what we saw over the last four years, you can pick a lot of points in history. Um, but I think one very I think I think one very valid point moment in time would be the financial crisis as a as a as a how do we get on this path to having Donald Trump be the president. And that was a moment where there was a collapse of a system and the the answer to the problem was more elite institutions, right? We really only saved Wall Street. Elizabeth Warren, she tried to you know, futz around at the edges, so did Gary Gensler. But at the end of the day, we saved the elite institution. We emphasized the elite institution. Even the rhetoric used that Tim Geithner used around it was if the bank should fall, we will all fall, which I think is really arguable now. And so examining that moment would probably be really helpful in better understanding this time and why people are so dissatisfied. But it's going to be hard to do because you're asking elite institutions, whether it's the media, whether it's government politics, any number of DC think tanks to look at recent history where they themselves could be culpable. And that's going to, I mean, it's just going to be a real challenge. I'm not saying it's not worthwhile, but I think it's going to be a real challenge. Well, maybe then there's a deeper question of to what extent there's a lot of angry Americans. And I think that for for me, I'm not the best person to adjudicate whether their grievances are legitimate because I, you know, I look around and I'm like, oh, okay, most of these people aren't actually the poorest of the poor. If we actually look at the the profile of folks who are at the Capitol, you know, many of them had you know, somewhat well-paying jobs. They weren't people who were- It's expensive to get to DC and stay in a hotel for a few days. Right, so there's there's this question of our grievances, when we use this word grievances, if someone is angry, um, how do we- well, hold on. Let me. I, I think I can you jump in. I, I can jump in in a different way. How 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 successful has it been to study the grievances of of Islamist terrorists in countering terrorism in the academic <laughs> sphere? No, because I mean, I think that's that that, that gets look. at the point. Because because the point is 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 ultimately look and and I mean this is this is the other question I had in general. It's the one of of what is the point of what we're trying to do, and that is like you know for one way to look at it is is. And of course, a liberal democracy should have more tolerance for dissent within it. However, there's there's a there's a liminal there's a, a like a, a threshold at which point disorder becomes an ill of its own and needs to be fought without understanding. Well, look, my my position would be that if people are angry, then there's probably a mixture of legitimate grievance and illegitimate grievance. And they're oftentimes intertwined together in ways that are hard to disentangle. But I think the basic premise should be if enough people are angry, we should try to address their anger through some kind of constructive approach. So we shouldn't just say and dismiss it and like, oh, these are a bunch of crazy QAnon people. They have somewhat well-paying jobs. Fuck them. 
let's just fight them and not give them any space. I don't see that as being a constructive approach because anger comes from somewhere. And it's not really for us as Brookings or New York Times to always be saying, okay, let's look at the list of grievances and go through them one by one and say, oh, they shouldn't be angry. I don't like this idea of saying someone who is angry shouldn't be angry because, I mean, ultimately... Anger is a subjective thing, and people have their own specific contextual factors, which lead them to be very dissatisfied. So someone could have a pretty good job, but they live in a community where opioid addiction is getting worse and worse, and they know a significant number of people who have died from overdoses, or they feel like their communities are completely forgotten, either by local government, state government, the federal government— there's a num- there's a whole set of contextual factors but what we do know is something is making them angry and something is making them feel like america has eclipsed them that they are no longer part of part of an american story that they feel proud of so i think that deserves a lot of attention from the media again like people can say oh we had all this reporting about trump voters over the last four years. I actually don't see it that way. What I saw is a dismissal constantly in elite institutions, in film, in art, in culture, in TV, in any kind of elite conversation I was part of. The tendency was always to say, these are racists and these are bigots. You know what? Let's not actually try to understand their grievances because their grievances aren't legitimate. They are actually just racist. Fuck them. That was my interpretation of what happened the last four years. When there is a decline of, a decline of Christian, a decline of religion, which I think we don't take seriously, that people are losing what binded local communities and, and there's a search for meaning. That's the bigger crisis here, a crisis of meaning and belonging. When I think about what you're saying, one thing is that we're putting almost too much on politics to solve these problems because everything else has frayed, right? Um, your point about religion, I think, is really interesting. When I think about, <clears throat> I grew up in a really rural part of the country. I grew up in rural Vermont. And the institutions in my town were pretty strong when I grew up, even though the economy had completely tanked. So like the economic institutions, the jobs were gone. That happened in the 80s. They were totally gutted and destroyed. But you still had uh, strong public schools. Um, you still had a lot of people who went to church. You still had a lot of people who were involved in the community, Rotary clubs, school, you know, school boards, PTAs, et cetera. A lot of that is gone now. And so we really do look to politics, do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of how do we help people work through the fact that they feel disenfranchised or angry that they wouldn't have turned to politics for before. You know, people who were growing up in towns like mine, where everybody had lost their jobs in the eighties because all sorts of factories closed down, whether you were looking at the Rust Belt, or whether you're looking at northern New England, which had all the same issue, or many of the same issues, people were not turning to politics to solve those problems. They were turning to lo- sort of like the local, more fabric of society. So one of the things that the media can do <clears throat> that I've always thought it could do better is look more seriously at uh, more local stories instead of worshiping power. And when I say worshiping power, I mean by giving it the only, by only giving the microphone to power. 
And I think that that is something that is a very valid critique of the media. I think some of the stories that I've read in the New York Times that I think have been the smartest and the best did not do that. They looked really at the world as it was lived by communities that were varied, that did not behave in stereotypes, and that were really full and fleshed out. And so I... I think that is one thing that the media could do well, you know, whether or not it's looking at the, and I, and I think that goes beyond just looking at the grievances of somebody who might be in a militia, which is an important story. And I think an interesting story, but I do think that beyond that, actually looking at how life is lived in the United States today is a really valid project. It's so interesting. I was just rereading, um, travels with Charlie, which is, I think a fantastic book. Do you, do you know the book? I don't know. John, John Steinbeck. He drives around the country in a in an RV with his dog. Oh, is he the guy who wrote? Um, I think it's a mm-hmm. well known book. Yeah, uh, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's famous. He's he's he's, he's, the great, he's, he's the, done some it's stuff. About, he wrote about grapes. He, I think. About wine. Yeah, it's a wine book. <laughs> he was he was an onophile. <laughs> but um, and in that book, it's the year nineteen sixty, and he's driving around the country just recording what he sees because he said he talks about how he he's as an elite. As a writer, as a New Yorker, he's supposed to be writing about the United States, this great novelist of America, and he has no idea what is going on. So he packs it up and he drives around and tries to make himself as invisible as possible and just take good notes. And it is, and that, and, and that is what makes it a really great book. He, 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 of course, you know, 1960 and he's a white dude, so he's bringing some preconceived notions to it. But, it still is as honest as he can be in accounting of what was going on in America, much of which really shocked him. So, you know, what struck me about uh, the way Shadi was talking about it, uh, maybe he was reacting to something you said earlier too, uh, when you're talking about institutions and about, you know, the institutions defending themselves is, and even when you talk about grievances, it's like, you know, what do we do to address them? And I, that's to your point, right? Is that like, you know, your experience growing up in Vermont, it's, 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 Who's the subject that is doing the how do we address it? There isn't that. Like it's there's a sense of that, you know, and I think that is a it's a it's a facet of the American experience. It's fundamentally different also from many other countries in the sense that, you know, the nation state, there's that sort of sense of 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 the state providing in in many ways. And you, you, it's just I think it's a different uh relationship to the state. And I and maybe it's it's in, you know, that we've gotten more like that over time, or at least we in the capitals have become more European in that way over time. And we, we, we see these things through the, through the lens of the state. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I take all your points on that. I just want to sort of get back to the, the question. And I mean, this is also a way to push back on Shadi's thing about, you know, understanding grievance and how effective is that on fighting? Because it gets back to the question of is the, what, what is the, what is the, the scale of the threat? You can't answer that. I mean, that's what we're, 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 we're grappling right now with. However, there's something else, though, that I do think is important is, is that, you know, I don't think the story is fully getting lost, but I, I think over time with it's getting eclipsed by this question of this looming threat is, you know, if the threat is real, how far should we go to actually also fight it, right? I mean, one of the things, I mean, Shadi has criticized me not so much on the podcast, but like my my main reaction watching that thing was like, my God, stop these people, start shooting. Literally, that was my reaction January 6th. You know, and I mean, I think like a lot of the, a lot of the, 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 the commentary was, 
look, they're white people. They're not getting shot and mistreated like black people. And true. And, and I think that I found this, this kind of discourse remarkable online where like, exactly as you're saying, where it's like, oh, if they were Muslims or brown people or black people, they would all be shot. And I'm like, okay, if the goal is equality in response, it shouldn't be that, um, oh, if brown people would have been shot, let's shoot the white people too. It's exact reverse. We don't think Muslims marching onto the Capitol should be shot. I think, and, I think breaching the Capitol, you should be shooting. I mean, I, I do I, no, feel no, that. No, and that's, so, and that's, and no, that's, but so, that's, but, but I just want to, you know, the reason I bring that up, not to really debate that, that, that nasty point and my, my sort of incipient fascism there, but it, it is, it's, it's, it's really to ask the question of, and I think it's, it's, and this is maybe to bridge the gap between, you know, your reporting on that story about Antifa and, 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 you know, white nationalism. What struck me about when reading that story is that, you know, it's a different, it's a fundamentally different kind of problem. And that's the thing is that, you know, the difference is it's, you know, the right does this all the time. They're like, well, the cities were burning, you know, in, in, uh, all last year. And, and then they try and cast an equivalency here. And, uh, I think that's false. Like, I mean, fundamentally it's different and, you know, whatever the scale of, of, you know, white nationalism is, I think that the, the threat is different. However, there is, I think, if there isn't if there is a, a category that 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 I think binds both of these, and I'd love to hear what you think about it, is the question of order. And this is what I'm getting at is like why I feel that 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 you know, now I'm not calling for more bloodshed, but I do think like more violence should have been expended to stop people from rampaging through the Capitol. And and you know, um, and and that's just and that that is an emotional response and I'll mm-hmm. I'll put that out right here. I Can to, I add I, something to yeah. that? Because look, I don't I think it there is an argument to be made that you know around the Capitol or the White House that you have very high levels of security. But I think the bigger question when you say how 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 large scale is this threat? What is what do we consider to be a threat? I personally don't see. Um, armed militias as being capable of overthrowing the American government. We have a very, um, a state that knows how to use force. And it's not like we're a little tin pot banana republic that is just going to kind of crumble with a couple, like not particularly well-organized militias. I mean, yes, there are militias. Yes, they are getting better organized, but we're also talking about one of the most powerful states in human history and I think the danger the danger is seeing this as an existential threat, mm. just mm. the way that we saw i never were were um Islamist terrorists ever an existential threat to America we are that we are that weak and fragile that Osama bin Laden actually had a chance to end America as we know it. We also have to keep some proportion here. I see the bigger threat as being um you know, sustained low-level civil conflict or levels of polarization that lead to where the normalization of political violence. And that's not just one side or the other. That's more of what our previous guest, Aaron Sibarium, has been talking about, a kind of Weimarization of American politics where you have a fundamental loss of legitimacy. Mm. And um, that's what I'm more worried about. But So I think we're almost paying attention to the wrong thing that these uh now that Biden has won it's sort of like oh um 
Trump was an aberration. Let's destroy these white nationalists or domestic terrorists. And that's that. We're actually... Um, Biden coming to power doesn't actually address the fundamental issue, which is that there's a deeper malaise in this country that is not addressed by a Biden presidency. And this this idea of going back to unity that, oh, we're back on track. And now that Trump is out, we can be normal again. No, there's something um, if if Trump was and we always we talk about this, Demir, if Trump was a symptom and not the cause then the causes are still going to be there no matter how long Biden is in power or Democrats are governing this country. That's really the illusion here that we now that we're comfortable and we're in power now on the whatever the center left or the center or whatever you want to call it, that we can almost take a step back and pretend that the deeper systemic issues aren't actually there. Because Biden is saving us. He's now going to bring us back to unity. And this is where the language of unity, I think, to me, is very false. So in in turn, so Demir, on your question of how big is the threat, mm-hmm. I think I think one way, given what Shadi has said, to look at it is not how big is the threat, but how much power will the state, how much violence will the state have to expend mm-hmm. in order to deal with this these pockets of of Americans, and I think that we're what we're concluding is it's a level of violence and uh, and and show of power that we're not comfortable with, and we haven't seen that in a while. Mm-hmm. And so I and when I think about how big is the threat, I think I actually think about it more like how much violence will the state have to how much power will the state have to show how much will have to flex in order to keep the peace. And that is unfortunately more than you think it's substantial. I, I, and I you're reporting it, it's think, coming through that. It, yeah. it, I think it's coming through that it's going to have to be in pockets all around the country, mm-hmm. um, more substantial than what we than what we want to see. That we're know? used to in any more case. More than what we're used to, and more than what we want, more than what we feel comfortable with when it tur- when we think about the the sort of like narrative of who who we are as Americans. Mm-hmm. And so that that's sort of how I look at it. So is it is it worth it? I, I think that, again, from a pure law enforcement perspective, I, I do think it is worth containing the peace. I think that we need people to feel a, 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 baseline, <laughs> a baseline level of safety slash healthy fear of the state. It's, it's kind of the it's kind of two sides of the same coin, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. in order to 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 live and make sort of higher order decisions and face higher order choices, the kind of that Shadi is talking about. So then when you look at what actually threatens America, to your point, I don't think it's militias because if we really needed to, we could take extreme measure that nobody wants to take, violate the Constitution and take care of the problem. It would be horrible. But it it, it could be done in theory. What is tearing the country apart that no that whether it's Biden or Bernie Sanders or Marco Rubio that no politician can really look at is that bigger question of what do we believe? Why do we believe it? And who are we willing to lock arms with in order to believe, you know, in order to say that we believe that this is our group of people. And I think that that is a question that predates Trump and that we are given an opportunity to examine maybe in a more, um, we're, we're, I'll just say we're, we're in a position maybe now where we can examine the question a little bit more if we're not always putting out 
day-to-day fires around whether or not Donald Trump is the worst human being who ever walked the face of the earth. I think that question, putting aside that question and putting that question out of commission is really healthy for our ability to address the kinds of things that Shadi's talking about. Mm. So I hate to do this, guys. Shadi's <laughs> running. He's got more appointments. Shadi is triple booked. No, triple. look, look, I think that I've realized that I've been making mistakes when we schedule the podcast that sometimes... So I, I am supposed to be at a dinner now and hopefully like they they can just like handle themselves like until I come. I hope so. And it won't be like the end of the world. Yeah. But it is a reminder to me that when we have amazing guests yes. like Katie, yes, that I should schedule nothing after the podcast and we should just go until whatever the natural end is. And I think that at some point, we should try to like break the two hour, maybe not with Katie, but maybe there'll be one. Why not? What's wrong with Katie? <laughs> but she probably also, she probably has to eat dinner and like go home. And I don't know, like people have plans. Like the podcast isn't the no most plans. important thing in their lives. <laughs> this is all that's in my life. <laughs> but there, this has been, there's a couple things I want to say. This has been such a, I feel like. We we want to have you again, and I'll speak on behalf of Demir here. Like I think we should have you again in the coming months, as we see how some of these issues unfold. Yeah. Um, but I think we've gotten at I think some of the fundamental questions of what will come to be known as the Biden era. Um, since I am also the marketer in chief, I I am obliged to make some make some remarks that maybe not everyone wants to hear, but everyone should hear. Yes. And I, so I solemnly say to all of you who are listening, to Demir and I and to our wonderful guest, Katie Benner of the New York Times, that if you liked what you heard here, you have a decision to make. Profound. A profound decision. And all of us are making profound decisions in this moment of, yes. of need, in this moment of real crisis in our country, which yes. is what podcast to support. That's right. <laughs> So if you like what we're doing, consider going to wisdomofcrowds.live and becoming a paid subscriber for not just the podcast, but also for our written content, which we are ramping up. And um, we have a lot of exciting stuff in store. We always tell you this, but I think we have delivered. Yes. I think that we are delivering to you. I'm a paid subscriber. That is, wow, that is true. We That is, th- thank you, Katie. So do what Katie of the New York Times has done and become a subscriber. Yes. And um, I guess I'm not going to be able to record the bonus episode with you right now, Demir, but we I will probably like tomorrow or the day after. So stay tuned and keep an eye out for the bonus subscribers only episode. Where we'll talk, Shadi and I'll talk about his dinner with other friends. <laughs> <laughs> but, it will accompany the launch of Shadi's uh, OnlyFans account. <laughs> That is something I don't fully understand. I've heard people talk about OnlyFans. I have heard it being described in relation to behaviors that we don't want to talk about yes. with a family because families might be listening. I have heard. Uh, no, let's not get yeah, into it. Yeah, let's not get into it. But I, I do feel like in many ways, Katie, that, that Wisdom of Crowds is Shadi's OnlyFans. <laughs> and actually, I should also say literally before uh, – Demir, two, like two hours – prior yeah uh i was talking to my parents and i was like listen i'm gonna go to demir's place we're recording an episode and my mom was like 
tell Demir I say hi. Hi, mom. Um, I still haven't met his mom. It's weird. <laughs> I see. There was something specific that you wanted me to convey to you. It was like something, uh, you know. God, I'll, you're I'll... such a bad son. Okay, save this for the <laughs> save this for the bonus this episode. Bo- this is the bonus. This material. is bonus material, <laughs> Katie. This is so great. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.